All right. Well, we are going to continue um, with Nehemiah, but we're going to run a little tangent. I'm not going to go on to chapter 9. I'm going to stick with chapter 8, and we're going to launch off that and talk about a little bit of context and history and different stuff. Um, I have a one-point sermon, so if you get my one point, you're good to go, and uh, we'll go from there. How many know that um, the Scriptures, as New Testament Gentile, non-Jewish believers, sometimes we look at the Bible as if there's two separate stories of God, an Old Testament God and a New Testament God, as if he's like almost got two personalities. <clears throat> is it just me? Maybe it's just me. Um, where you look at, we might look at the Old Testament as if God is somewhat angry and distant in the New Testament as if he's a loving father and more close. Anybody ever, maybe it's not you, but it's that Christian down the street from you. Anybody ever heard of that? All right. Amen. It does happen. Uh, the, the, the reality is it's not true. The reality is, is there's one story from Genesis to Revelation, one God who has uh, revealed himself through the word of the Lord, and it's really one story. And as we read that, I want to encourage us, as we read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a lots of different stories that will give you pieces of who God is and understand his heart a little here and a little there. Um, but really, we have one perfect revelation of God, and that revelation is Jesus. Why does that matter? Because if there's anything you get about how God treats people from the book of Job or from some war that happened in the book of Joshua that you can't find in the life of Jesus, I would suggest maybe you pause and look closer at the life of Jesus. Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, he said we're the same. You, you look at me, you look at the Father. So any, any, any idea, any theology of God that you have that you can't see in my life, you might want to just be careful of that and at least question it and see if it's theologically accurate. This morning, we're going to talk about Nehemiah, an Old Testament section of Scripture. Um, I don't know what it was, maybe 425-ish years before Jesus actually was born as a, as, a, as a baby in Bethlehem. So hundreds of years before Jesus uh, came to Bethlehem, there's this book called Nehemiah. And I want to propose to you that Jesus is actually in Nehemiah because all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation reveals the Son. All of it reveals God. And so you can find him in the whole book. Um, so this morning, we're going to launch out of Nehemiah chapter 8. So if you've been tracking with us, uh, maybe open up to Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to read three specific verses, 10, 12, and 16. And then we're going to kind of go from there. Um, some would say that the Old Testament concealed the sun. He's hidden kind of in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it reveals the sun. He's very out in the open and easy to understand. Um, and so that's, that's what I want, that's a, the backdrop of where I want to talk from today, is recognizing that all of this, all of this is meant to point us to Jesus, even the story of Nehemiah. Um, so Nehemiah chapter 10, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 10, said, Now Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drink, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. Let's stop. An interesting piece is, as we read through the scripture, recognizing who does that sound like? Does that sound like an angry, distant God or a loving father? Send some to those who have nothing prepared. That's your loving father. Throughout all of the Old Testament, you'll find bits and pieces of the heart of God where he's constantly caring for the less fortunate. And even here in uh, Nehemiah 8, 
He said, go, I want you to enjoy choice food, sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Verse 12, then all the people went away, and they did as they were told, to eat, to drink, and to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy. Great joy. Say great joy. joy. That's pretty good. With great joy. Because they understood the words that had been been made known to them. In verse 16, so the people went out and they brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square next to the water gate and the gate of Ephraim. That may seem out of place. The first two scriptures are talking about this party, and the third one I pull out talks about them building booths, and we'll kind of get into what that is. Um, But one of the things I want to do before we begin, we got the backdrop of the scripture, is I want to pray. And here's what I want to pray. I believe that just as if, just as it's true that Jesus is put into the, the living word of God is revealed through this book. And that happened because some men that are long dead were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, right? Think of like Isaiah, Jeremiah, or in this case, Nehemiah, whoever wrote it. And they're thinking, oh, I should write this. Well, God was actually partnering with them to write words that would, be, that would last through generations, that would be living and active and actually do something in the hearts of man. God inspired them through the power of the Holy Spirit to write and get, this is going to sound weird, might come out, but to get Jesus into the book. Inspiration gets the living word in the book, and revelation gets it out. How many of you know I can sit here, and you can, you, can, you can read your Bible day in and day out, and do your Bible study, and you're reading the facts, and blah, blah, blah. And in all honesty, if you're going to be honest, there's some days where you're like, that is boring. You laugh because you know it's true. There are times when there's not life, but when the Holy Spirit takes that same verse that was boring yesterday and begins to show you how he... That's for you today. That's called revelation. He opens that up to you, and you're like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Your friend's like, didn't you just say that was boring yesterday? Yeah, but today it's amazing. That's revelation. It actually means to pull back, like to pull back the covers, like God revealing to you the life that's in the book. So the Holy Spirit got life into the book through inspiration. He gets life out of the book by revelation. And a great example of that in Scripture is the life of John the Baptist and Jesus. You may know that John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. I don't know if you knew that. They were cousins, so they probably did life together. I don't know. I was, it's funny. I was just going to say, they probably spent Christmas together, but probably not because Christmas wasn't a thing. But you know, (laughs) they probably spent holidays together or whatever. I don't know how they did it back then, but they were cousins. And it wasn't until John is now in the middle of his ministry baptizing people in the river that all of a sudden he sees Jesus coming toward and he goes, ah, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the one God told me about for years. I've been walking with him my whole life as my cousin. I didn't know you were him. Not until he came to the river and God the Father said, that's him. That's the one I was telling you about. John the Baptist got revelation in the middle of his ministry, right at the river, that his cousin was the Savior. And that's what happens to us. In the middle of what we're doing, the word of God comes alive, captures our heart, and everything changes because Jesus is the word of God. So this morning, that's all to say that we would get on the same page and pray one simple prayer, which is this, which is, Jesus, speak to my heart today. Change my life that I would never be the same 
Not because of words that were preached, but because of love and life that was revealed. Because of the living word. Because of Jesus that would just come and take resident in my heart in a new way today. Help me to see Jesus high and lifted up in all that you want me to see of Jesus today. Lord, I pray that like John the Baptist, each and every one of us would have a moment that no matter how familiar we are with Jesus, we would say, oh my goodness, he's the one. Something about the word that was preached today that just came alive in my heart. Lord, Holy Spirit, we invite you to do that in us today. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen? All right. So if you've been around and you know Nehemiah, that's where we're going to start. If you haven't been around... We're going to give you some backstory. So Nehemiah chapter 8 is what I would consider the high point of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was, a, um, the backstory is this, that the people of God for 70 years were in captivity. Um, they were taken captive by the Babylonians. So they were actually taken from their home, many of them, from their home in Jerusalem and um, taken away for uh, a generation, basically, for 70 years. And then uh, through a series of circumstances that was orchestrated by God, they were allowed to come back to their homeland and rebuild Jerusalem. And that happened in stages. And the stages were this. The book of Ezra and and Nehemiah used to be one book uh, for the majority of the time. It wasn't until relatively recently that they were pulled out into two books. And the, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah tell one story, and it's the return of God's people from captivity. And it starts out with this man named Zerubbabel, who I have no idea if I'm saying his name right, but he basically came back as a governor to kind of govern the people and orchestrate the rebuilding of the temple. The temple was the place where sacrifices were made. You know, they'd bring the sheep and the goats and all that kind of stuff, and they'd have the sacrifices at the temple. That's where the physical encounter of, like, God happened at that place. And it was destroyed. And so they had to rebuild it. And Zerubbabel, he actually... he was the one who started it. He rebuilt that thing. Now, if you remember, Pastor Justin, I think it was last week or the week before, he mentioned that the wall took 52 days to rebuild. The temple took 20 years. <laughs> it was a little bit more of an undertaking. They had a little bit more resistance. So this guy led the charge. It kind of went on and off for a little bit. But they finally get the temple rebuilt. Um, certain people are excited about it. Certain people weren't. But they got it done. That's Zerubbabel's piece. That happened in the book of Ezra. And then this other two characters, which we know about, Ezra and Nehemiah come along, and Nehemiah is sent out to rebuild the wall around the city. And so that's what he does. Nehemiah is basically a project manager, and he does a project manager thing, gets this wall rebuilt. He's working with all the different families of the the city. Now we have a temple rebuilt. We have a wall that's rebuilt around the city of Jerusalem. And then this guy named Ezra, who's basically a Bible teacher. He used to teach the, the, the Torah. He comes and he begins to share with the people of God who are freshly basically back from captivity. They just came back, and now they're back in their home city of Jerusalem. They're in their home land. They got a place to worship the temple. They have the walls to protect them. Everything feels as though it's kind of getting back to normal, and Ezra says, I need to teach you the ways of God. And he begins, I assume, to teach him out of Leviticus 23, because one of the first things they do is celebrate this feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. Anybody ever read parts of the book of Leviticus? Whose favorite book in the Bible is Leviticus? Hey, we got one in the back. I love it. I would say this. I would say probably more than we know, Leviticus is completely central to our understanding of the faith 
it was core to what was called the Torah, the five books of the Old, uh, first five books of the Old Testament, the teachings of Moses. So much of all that uh, we believe actually points back to Leviticus. So this morning, we're going to dig in to a scripture that I think probably Ezra was teaching the people about the ways of God. It's out of uh, Leviticus chapter 23. So if, I'll give you a few minutes to, uh, to, to, to find it. Start at the beginning, go past Genesis, go past Exodus, and you'll hit Leviticus. And um, this is where Moses actually tells the people of God about some parties that he wants them to participate in every year, um, which may or may not seem right to you, but they were feasts. Some of them were solemn. A few of them were very joyful. In fact, you were commanded to be joyful. And the Feast of Trumpets is one of those two things. One of the, I'm sorry, one of the joyful ones. As you, did, as you do that, as you get to Leviticus 23, I want to I mention one thing. Ezra was a teacher. He was a Bible teacher. But we prayed for teachers today. No matter what you teach, I think a teacher is a teacher. You have a heart to help others learn. There's just a certain heart about teachers that they're equipped and gifted to do that. Ezra, I like to call, was a project manager. Now, I know they each had their lineages and they were you know, priests and different things. But he functioned for those 52 days as a project manager. Any project managers in the house today? We had a couple in the first service. And Zerubbabel... He was basically a governor. He, he was making sure the things got done. He was over, over that city of Jerusalem at the time. And I say that because I want to recognize this one thing. Uh, one of the, which I think we're kind of getting away from, but for a long time, I think Christians used to believe that this was the thing. You'd, you'd, you'd come to Jesus, give your heart to God. I'm so on fire. I love you, Lord. I'll do anything you want. And we all think that I'll do anything you want ends up being in, like a, a preacher or a pastor or a missionary. Like that's the ultimate goal. And it's not. This story is a great representation because it shows that when an ordinary person, a project manager, gets an ordinary job, but it's a call from God to build a wall, that the ordinary person doing an ordinary job at the direction of the Lord literally changes history. And what we need in our day is not more pastors and preachers, not even. What we need is people that are called of God in their own sphere of life to do what God's called them to do with excellence and integrity and follow through until that's done and they can say, hey, I've done what you've called me to do, Lord. It's a story about regular people doing regular things at the, at the hand and the direction of God. And I just want to say it's a beautiful story because this really was a pivotal point in the history of God's people. So here we are. Um, we're going to read a couple verses at the beginning. Le Leviticus chapter 23, the first couple verses. The Lord spoke to Moses. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord. It sounds like he's stuttering. <laughs> Tell them, these are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord. He says the same thing twice. What's he trying to get, up, get across to us? Are these the feasts of the Jews? No, these are the feasts of the Lord. Who called them? The Lord called them. They're his feasts. So he begins to tell you down through here when you kind of look, he calls and he says in the last part of that verse, he says, which you are to proclaim as sacred assembly. So what Leviticus chapter 27 does, it's really interesting to read from a historical perspective and you can kind of do that at home. We'll pick up on verse 39 in a minute. But it talks through seven feasts of the Lord. Some people call them seven feasts of Israel. The scripture calls them the feasts of the Lord. And there's four in the spring and there's three in the fall. And out of those seven there's three 
where the people of God had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate it together. And what we're going to talk about in the Feast of Tabernacles is one of those three, one of those sacred assemblies where they had to come together in Jerusalem and celebrate it together. And in fact, many people would say, I don't know this to be true, but I, I was reading some stuff, they would say that the Feast of Tabernacles is actually the feast where people are commanded to be joyful the most. This is a time of celebration. And if you remember in Nehemiah 8, Ezra said, hey, stop weeping, we're going to be joyful, it is party time. Can you imagine coming to church and they're saying, hey, wipe that sad face off, it's time to party. That's what, that's what Ezra's command was. Do you know on the, on the flip side, totally weird story, you got time for a rabbit trail? A guy I knew um, was a pastor in upstate New York when I was uh, working there. And um, for a number of years, maybe I have had to guess eight years back, about 20 years ago, he would actually minister in, in the, to the leaders of the underground church in China. It's a long story how he got there, but he would literally go with a phone number, fly into China at the time. There was a lot of persecution. He would make a phone call. A guy he didn't know would come pick him up, put him on the back of a motorcycle, put a bag over his head so he didn't know where he was going, and they would hide him all through China as he ministered to these leadership of about 20 million people. And um, he was at one meeting, and the Holy Spirit breaks out in the back of this flower shop. So they have all these pastors, I don't know, like 100 pastors that are standing back to back. They don't have Bibles, so they literally are writing with paper and pen on each other's back so they could take down the scripture. He's talking, he's meeting, he's doing his thing in the back of this flower shop owned by a Christian um, it's kind of hidden away in the back and the Holy Spirit just pours out and you have all these people just radically being touched by the joy of the Lord. They had to station somebody at the front of the door to tell them all to wipe the smile off their face because it was so unlike the culture. They said, if you go out there and you're all giddy, they're going to know God touched you today. So get that smile off your face. I mean, that's a funny problem to have. I don't know why I just thought of that. But I think that's the point. Like, it's interesting that Ezra talks about holiness and a connection with joy. I'd like to suppose, uh, propose to you that maybe that there's a stronger connection between holiness and joy than we know. All right, I'll leave it at that. Okay, so we're going to read uh, verse 39. Let's read potentially what probably uh, Ezra read to the children of Israel, or the, uh, I'm sorry, the, the captives that came back. Verse 39, so we've talked about, I think, the other six, I think, um, Feast by now, I think this may be the last one. I could be wrong. I think it's the last one in this chapter we go through. It says, verse 39, So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered your crops of the land, so this is literally the, it's a festival at the end of harvest season, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of rest, and the eighth day is also a day of rest. On the first day, you are to take choice fruit from the trees, and palm fronds, leafy branches, and poplars, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. They had, a, they had a command to celebrate for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths so that your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That's, that's the backstory, which we'll get into. But that's the backstory from Leviticus of what this Feast of Booths is all about. So you might ask, why was this so important? Why would God want his people, command them even, to celebrate? I don't really think God is all about 
little religious things you're supposed to do just because he wants to see if he can get you off on a technicality. Oh, he didn't do that. I think what's in the scripture tends to be in the scripture for our benefit because the Lord loves us. Because he sees the end from the beginning and he knows what's right for us. And he said, and when looking at this whole thing, I think it would be good if my people recognized and celebrated me in this context, which we'll get to, every year for a week. And here it is. The, the Israelites, the people of God, were in bondage in uh, Israel, or I'm sorry, Egypt. So we're talking separate from captivity. Years before, do you remember the story of Moses and he brought them out of Egypt and the plagues and all that kind of stuff? Up and down for yes, side to side for no? Yeah, yeah. So he brings them out of Egypt, and then they spend 40 years in the wilderness wandering around. Probably wasn't Moses' plan. Um, he probably thought he would just take the few, few days' trip to the, the promised land and they'd be done with it. But they spent 40 years, nevertheless, wandering around in the wilderness. And if you remember in Leviticus, this feast, that's what it's talking about with booths. When, when the Lord says, I brought my people out, and I, and I had them to live in booths in the wilderness. That's what we're commemorating. Now, you might think, well, that's not really commemorating something good. Who wants to live in a booth? But the, think about this. Three million people, that's what some estimates were, that left Egypt. They traveled for 40 years through the wilderness. And the wilderness is simply unsettled place. It doesn't necessarily mean it was a desert. I think there were certain times it was the desert. Um, but it's definitely unsettled. It's rocky. It's craggy. There's not much going on. It's not a place you're really excited about. They're traveling through it for 40 years. But this is the stuff that the Israelites would remember in this celebration. How did they get their food? Manna. The Lord actually rained down, boy, I don't know how it came, food every day for them, that the ground was just filled with this manna that they ate. And then when they complained, God said, all right, you want meat, I'll give you meat. And he gave them so much quail, they were basically barfing it up. Am I right? It's the truth. It said they had quail coming out of them. And the clothes, I think it's in Deuteronomy 39 maybe, it says literally for three million people, none of their clothes wore out. Not even their shoes. The scripture says their shoes didn't wear out. And they're in the middle of nowhere, and there's a lot of them, and there was enough branches, sticks, raw materials for three million people to everywhere they went build booths and live in booths. They would follow this column of fire and this cloud by night and this cloud by day, and wherever the column of fire or the cloud stopped, they would set up camp, and they would just make their new booths. And everywhere they went, they never ran out of supplies. I would like to suggest to you that one of the main revelations of the Feast of Tabernacles is that God is with you in your wilderness. You may feel alone. You may feel like God's not answering your prayers. You may feel like things aren't going your way. You may even accuse God of leaving you, but he doesn't. And God wants us on a regular basis to remember, even in my wilderness, even in the hardest place of my life, even in the place where I don't have all the answers, he is with me and he's still providing for me. He's still caring for me. He's still going to be by my side, never leave me or let me go. Here's the temptation. Is it it seems as if God in the wilderness is ignoring your prayer. You ever been there? But God, but God, what about this prayer? I just want to get to the promised land and I want to get it over with. You got us out of Egypt. This is where I want to go. And you don't get there and you don't get there. And, you get, and then they finally said, well, I just want to go back to Egypt because I'd rather be a slave. You ever been there? You, 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 that's human nature. In our human nature, we don't, when we don't have the thing we want, 
We stack the deck against ourselves and make it sound like everything's terrible. And God's over here saying, but what about the 15 million prayers I did answer? You got shoes that aren't wearing out, shirts that aren't wearing out. You got food every day. And when you complain about it, I gave you different food. I protected you from things you didn't even know I was protecting you about. Here's another thing. While they were wandering the wilderness, you know the Lord only, only led them into battles that they were ready to, to, to win. God never led them into battles they couldn't win. He would, he would actually take them around places. He's like, nah, you're not really, you're not really strong enough for that. Let's not, let's not touch that. He knew where to lead them. The temptation is that in the wilderness, God seems far away. The temptation is, is that we've been walking around this desert place for so, some time now. It feels like years, and I'm losing hope. And God says, remember. If you don't have a story to remember, build a booth and remember your ancestors' story. That they had 40 years of me taking care of them, and I haven't changed. I'm the God who stays with you. You know, I had a, um, a friend of mine, and I don't know, you know, we've all have probably at some point or another in our life, what could be called a wilderness time, right? Our unsettled time. Things are a little up in the air. Things don't pan out the way you think they should. It's a struggle. It's a frustration. Um, and some of us in this room probably have had times that are even more than that. I mean, that have brought you to your breaking point, and maybe you're even there now. And I remember sitting in my office uh, some years ago with a friend and having this discussion and saying, how is it? How is it you're going on? Because what you're going through is more than just a wilderness. You're going through insanity. Like, he had stuff in his life. And I remember him in tears, breaking down, looking at me and saying, Tom, I wish God would answer this prayer here. And he seems to be not answering it. I don't know what's going on there. I don't have that answer. I have lots of questions over here. I'm frustrated. Sometimes I'm angry with God. I'm disappointed. I'm on the verge of hopelessness sometime. But here's my problem. He said, I can't deny that he's with me every day. I can't deny that I sense him with me and directing me and blessing me and being with my family and helping me every single day through this. So sometimes God doesn't take us out of the wilderness. I don't think the wilderness is necessarily God's desire. But sometimes he'll have us walk through it and we just have to trust him along the way. Here's my, my pastoral kind of encouragement for us. Two things. The first one's easy, the second one's challenging. First one is, um, is recognizing when you're in a wilderness. Sometimes you have bad days. We all have bad days. It's such as life. And other times you're just in an unsettled place. Your heart isn't settled. You, you, you've been in a relationship, maybe you're married for a number of years, everything is going well, and then all of a sudden things just feel like it's crumbling underneath. You can't, you're not finding life. Something's going on. God, I need you to work on my marriage. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe you have a plan for your financial success and you have it all planned out. Everything is going great and then everything just crumbles around you. You're like, God, I'm working the plan. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I don't know, why is this not working out? Maybe, maybe you're you know, single, and for years you've been trusting God for a mate. That's the desire of your heart, and that's just not happening. And you come to this place of almost being hopeless. When you feel that, that's a wilderness place. So number one, recognize you're in the wilderness. And number two, I would encourage you to do what the feast talks about, which is celebrate the Lord. Well, I don't feel like celebrating. Well, that's the point. I don't think any of us feel like celebrating when you're in the wilderness. I don't think, woohoo, this is wonderful. And it's not celebrating your circumstance. It's celebrating who God is. Every year, the, the, uh, the Hebrew people, the Israelite people had to come to Jerusalem and together, corporately as a nation, 
remember the goodness of God and act it out, which I think is fun and I think the kids probably loved, and act it out by building these booths and sleeping in them for seven days. Somebody said to me between services, you should retitle your message, let's go camping. It's kind of what he's having them do. Like the Lord is really into us actually experiencing truth with our physical body and our senses and the whole thing. I mean, that's what communion is. We celebrate it today. Communion is based on one of the feasts, which is the feast of Passover. And within Passover, that's when Jesus did communion. So this truth of communion is meant to be something that we experience through this, through this encounter, this feast with food on a regular basis. And it, it gains meaning as all of a sudden you're breaking the bread and having the juice and the other parts of Passover encountering it and whatnot. And it's the same with tabernacles. Every year that they were supposed to go to Jerusalem, experience tabernacles, and be almost forced to rejoice. Because God knew it's good for you. Well, I just want to stay depressed. I understand. I do too sometimes. But the Lord's like, no, no, no. It's good to rejoice. Sometimes you just need to take seven days and say, I'm just going to rejoice. Not in my circumstance. Not in anything other than who I know God to be. I know even though things don't, might not be working out the way I want them to be, I know that he's a healer. I know that he's a deliverer. I know that he's a savior. I know that he provides for me. I know that he's not forgotten me. And I'm going to remind myself of that. And one of the best ways to do that is turn with me. It's a Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is a, a beautiful psalm to help ourselves remember what the Lord does in our life, what the heart of the Lord is toward us. David wrote this psalm, and it's really beautiful how it begins. It says this. He says, praise the Lord. I'm going to say it in my own words. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. What is he doing? David is commanding his soul to bless the Lord. What am I talking about? Well, you can say anything you want with your mouth, but sometimes your mind, will, and emotions don't actually mean it, right? You tell your kid, you're going to respect mommy or whatever the issue is. And they're like, sure, whatever. And you just know they're just saying the words, but they don't really mean it. I remember one little kid, I heard the story. He's like, um, <laughs> little kid was, their parent told him to sit down, sit in the corner. The kid sits down. He goes, I'm standing on the inside. Sometimes our word and our heart don't actually get in line. And what David's saying in this psalm is, heart, get in line. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I'm going to keep saying it with my lips until my mind and my emotions begin to do the same thing and recognize he's worthy to be praised. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He says, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. He goes on to say, who forgives, oh no, here it is, um, and forget not, say forget not, Forget not all of his benefits. Why would David say forget not? It's because we're prone to forget. When you're in the wilderness, you're not generally sitting there remembering all the good things of God. You're just re realizing there's rocks and things are craggy and it doesn't look good and I'm not settled. David says forget not all of his benefits. It goes on in verse 3. Who forgives all your sin, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things. Say good things. Do you believe that? Do you believe you have a Father in heaven that wants to satisfy your desires with good things? That's the truth. Sometimes in our religiousness, 
We like to, we like to say we believe that, but then when bad things happen or, you know, the cancer comes or the marriage breaks down or whatever it is, we go back to, well, the Lord knows best. Well, the Lord does work in mysterious ways, but his, he's mysteriously good. He doesn't cause that stuff. The Bible says that Jesus came that you'd, you'd have abundant life. But the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. In your life, take a little marker, put a line down, and say anything on this side of the line, which is abundant life, that's Jesus. And Jesus perfectly represents the Father. And over here, that whole thing was steal, kill, and destroy. That's the thief. That's, that's the devil. That's not God. That's not on God's resume. And, and David reminds us of that. He says, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Isn't that good? I love that verse. At, it's one of those verses that just puts a black and white in my theology. I don't know, but you probably know this about me by now, but my theology is not that deep. I think we have a very good God and a bad devil. And Jesus came to make a payment so that I can be in real, right relationship with he and his father. Because I couldn't do it on my own. And this verse shows me the heart of God. And some people out there, let me give you a definition on something else though. I know there's a whole thing about like prosperity preachers. The prosper in the word Bible, in the Bible, the word prosper in the Bible means to do well. And I want to tell you, God is a prosperity God. He wants you to do well. Now when we talk about prosperity preachers, what, what is not in the heart of God is greed. Right? It's not about my greed, it's about God's glory. But at the end of the day, if I'm not convinced that my God actually cares about me enough to want to satisfy my desires, the scriptures say, with good things. Some of us feel guilty having desires. And God says, no, 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 no. I want you to desire good things. I'm a good dad. I want to give you good things. At the end of the day, it's all for the glory of Jesus. And that's where we get weird. It is. We get, if you get greedy, that's a separate thing. Get, get rid of your greed. But recognize we have a good father who wants to bless their kids with good things. Now we have a good father who sometimes is like, hey, you're going to walk through this wilderness and that's just the way it is. But I'm with you the whole way. And that's the truth. Is that helpful to anybody today? Yes. All right. I want to give you, <laughs> I want to give you some prophetic encouragement, uh, uh, scriptural encouragement, but I kind of wrote it prophetically. In other words, like, well, you'll see. It's six scriptural truths, okay? You're, you're, you're maybe needing to encourage yourself in the Lord. You, David did that. I don't know if you know that. You know that. He, the scripture says David encouraged himself in the Lord, which means we can do the same thing. Um, but maybe you need, even though we don't, we're not going to go out and make booths tonight, um, but maybe you need to have that same experience in your own life. You actually need to celebrate the goodness of God. You need to remember that he's the God that stays with you in the wilderness. This is for you. He says, never forget. So these are all actually scriptures that I just kind of rewrote to make a little conversation. Never forget that I am with you every day. I will never leave you, never. I will never loosen my grip on your life. That's actually what one of the uh, Greek words means in Hebrews 13. You see, loving me, empowers, loving me empowers you to obey my word, and my Father will love you so deeply that we will come to you and make you our dwelling place, John 14. 
Even my introduction to those in Bethlehem the night that I was born was as Emmanuel, which means God with us, as a reminder that you have my word, that I am the God who stays with you. I am with you till the end. That's Matthew chapter 1. Do you believe me today? I have, for, I have not forgotten about you, he says. The truth is I've never even turned my eye away from you. I've never stopped caring about you. That's 1 Peter 5. Just because you're in a desert place or a wilderness place doesn't mean I've stopped providing for you. You can trust me. Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened or discouraged. I'm with you wherever you go. That's Joshua chapter 1. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you up. I am the God who helps you. That's Isaiah 41. That's the word of the Lord. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles is meant to strengthen the people of God about. It's a a week to celebrate the goodness of God. Do you guys remember the scripture where Jesus says on the last and great day of the feast, he stood up and he said, if you believe in me, like the scriptures say, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. Remember that? It's John chapter 7. It's a great story. It talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit being poured out. and It's beautiful. John chapter 7 happened at the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's why it says on the last day, the great day of the feast, that was the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the most exciting day, Jesus gets up and he's like, he, goes, he says, I want to tell you about something. There's coming a day where if you believe on me, as the scriptures say, you're going to have living water pouring out of you. The Feast of Tabernacles is really an important and encouraging thing. Why don't you stand with me? Maybe you're listening to me um, and you think to yourself, ah, that's great. I wish I was there, Pastor Tom, but I'm not. I'm so far from God that I don't know where to even begin this morning. Here's the deal. I told you, I think the whole thing, Genesis to Revelation, points to Jesus. And this is what we're going to, this is what I want to show you. So let's end where we began, which is Nehemiah chapter 8. The temple's rebuilt. The Jewish people are coming home. The wall around Jerusalem is finally set. Things are safe. We have a place to worship. Our community, things are good. The people are becoming unified. Well, the story is actually a historical narrative. What do I mean by that? I mean, it really happened. Sometime between uh, 538 BC and 425 BC, this all happened. The temple was rebuilt. The walls were rebuilt. Isaiah, or, I'm sorry, Ezra did his teaching. All this stuff happened. Um, what else? Around that time, at the end, around 420-ish, that's when people like Socrates were born. Plato was born, somewhere around that time. By the time the walls were built, you know that epic poem, The Odyssey, The Odyssey and the Iliad? The Odyssey was 200 years old by then. I mean, this was real things that happened to real people in a real specific point of time. But at the same time, I believe the scripture actually has an allegorical encouragement for us. In other words, it has a meaning that you can grab hold of in 2023 and run with because it's God speaking to you afresh. And maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit will reveal something to you right now. That it will be living bread that you can run with. Do you know Isaiah chapter 60 verse 18 says this? He says, But you will call your walls salvation. And your gates praise. Isaiah 60 is that scripture where it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen among you. Deep darkness is among the people, but his light shines upon you. It's this beautiful uh, verse just about the coming of the Lord and the, and the beauty of Jesus' light just pervading everywhere. And then in verse 18 it says, And the walls shall be called salvation, which honestly, if you read it, makes no sense. 
So you realize 2,000 years ago, a little boy was born in a manger of Bethlehem. We call him Jesus, but his Hebrew name was Yeshua. And Yeshua literally means salvation. And Isaiah says that the walls are all about Jesus. Maybe in your life, one of two things walls do. Walls protect us and walls give us identity. And both of those things primarily come from our Savior. Both of those things are meant to come first from Jesus. Both of those things in our culture, we need to relearn how to trust God for. That he is first and foremost my protection. I remember my wife and I went and we we ministered in this low-income housing project in Tacoma for 18 months. It was miserable, but we knew we were supposed to be there. And when we first went there, I remember our daughter was really young, and I looked at the lady that ran the ministry, and I said to her, is this place safe? And she looked back at me, and she said, Tom, the gospel's never safe. It's just a matter of if you're supposed to do it or not. And we had to recognize, because it was not a safe place, that the Lord was our protection. He hemmed us in. He was walls about us. And he would take care of us and our young family. And he did. We had shootings on our front, front lawn. I broke up knife fights with the FBI on our property. We had, oh, it was, it was insane. But he was our protection. And we needed to trust him for that. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're lost, you're alone. Maybe you feel like you are, have no protection. Maybe you felt like you used to have protection, but some relationship crumbled and now you're on your own. Or maybe... If I'm going to be honest, you're just kind of living for yourself and in sin. Maybe there's just, I've been away from God or I've never known a relationship with Jesus, but I don't feel safe and I don't feel protected. Do you know an old timer that I used to love listening to used to say this? He would say that we are either dead in our sin or we are dead to sin, one or the other. I pray that New Life Church continues toward this goal of being a church that's just dead to sin. Sin has no hold on us. We get to live free in Jesus, filled with joy, because there's something about what Ezra said. He said, don't mourn today. Today is holy. Be joyful. There's some connection that we don't get between holiness and joy. When we live right before God, it just creates something in us where we're just supposed to be joyful. If that's you today, maybe you say, hey, I got no protection. I'm on my own and I'm tired. I would say, you need the walls of salvation that only Jesus provides. But walls also do the second thing. They define parameters of a city. They tell you where to enter the city, where to exit the city. They tell you where the city is located. They give the city an identity. And maybe this morning, whether you're here or even online, you would say, I don't even know how to define who I am. I've struggled with that for years. Identity has been a core issue in my life. You may not even like who you are. I want to say this morning that you have a heavenly father who loves who you are. That doesn't mean he agrees with everything we do. It means he looks at you and he says, I created that one and I love them. And I want to give you some truth this morning that you're not a mistake, that you may not like you, but God does. You've created, maybe you've tried to figure out who I really am, but the problem is your identity starts and ends with Jesus. God knit you together in your mother's womb. There was a day when you were literally being knit together by the hand of God in the womb of your mom. There was an identity and a destiny that he has placed on your life before you were ever actually born. And he is excited, I don't know if that's the right word, 
I believe he's desirous that we would walk in that identity, that destiny. The scripture says this, it says, but to all who believed in Jesus, all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. This is the same Yeshua, the same salvation, who wants to save you, protect you, and make you a child of God. The reality is this, we hear about everything, oh, we're all just God's children. According to scripture, that's not true. In the sense that God made us all, maybe. But we become children of God when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says everything changes when we put our faith in Christ, when we turn from our own wicked way to live a life of faith and trust. Do me a favor, we're gonna end this time together with a short and simple prayer. And I'm gonna ask everyone in the sound of my voice, even if you're home by yourself, look crazy and just do this with me. But pray this prayer out loud, really loud. Annoy your neighbor. You ready? Dear Lord, I need you today. I say no to sin. I say no to selfishness. But I say yes to Jesus. I say yes to salvation. I say yes to protection. I say yes to your identity. And I say yes to following you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Now, faith is the most important thing. I don't think there's anything magical about a prayer, but it can start our journey with God. And if that's the first time you prayed anything like that in your life, I encourage you after service, there's gonna be some people over here in our prayer corner. Go share that with them. Let them pray with you. Let them encourage you. Let them walk this journey with you today. And as we kind of take a moment, we're gonna sing a song that just lifts high the name of Jesus. And although we may not be celebrating for a week, let's celebrate with joy for five minutes recognizing there were times in my own wilderness where God never left me. He's the God who stayed and he always will stay. Amen?